I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 260 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today we have a very special episode, a lecture given about psyche and society, coloniality, degeneracy, and alienation. The first of a three-part lecture series given to third-year psychiatry residents at the University of New Mexico by Dr. Abdel Aziz Al-Bawab, a Palestinian of the diaspora. He completed his medical training at Whale Cornell Medicine, Qatar, where he received the Excellence in Psychiatry Award. He is a psychiatry resident at the University of New Mexico, where he also serves as Chief of Psychotherapy and is a recent recipient of the fourth annual Austin Riggs Award for Excellence in Psychotherapy. He is interested in psychosis, psychoanalysis, and liberatory approaches to clinical practice. There is a video of this lecture, including the PowerPoint, up at YouTube. There's a link included in the text accompanying this episode, as well as at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support Rendering Unconscious at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge thanks to everyone at our Patreon. Thank you so much for being there and supporting the podcast. Rendering Unconscious is a labor of love. I don't accept any outside funding. I do everything myself from interviews to editing to promotion. And the only support comes from our Patreon patrons. So thank you so much to the fans, listeners, guests, and to our Patreon community. Your support is hugely, hugely appreciated. We've also started a substack, vanessa23carl.substack.com, where we also post exclusive content every week. It's the same exclusive content that we post at our Patreon every Monday. We call them Magic Monday Posts, where we talk about specifically our creative and magical practices. And we've recently started a Discord for our Patreon community where we have threads talking about film, art, music, magic, books. We're reading works in progress and a special thread dedicated to Rendering Unconscious podcast. So join us at Patreon and join us at Discord and join in the conversation. It's been super, super fun to talk with everyone there on a daily basis. You can follow me on social media at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram, and Dr. Vanessa23 at TikTok. All right, let's see. Okay, so it'll be a little bit different from what you're used to. It'll be interdisciplinary. Okay, so a lot of history, like I was saying, and um, that'll be important to understand where we're at today. And since we're going to talk a lot about colonialism, you know, we'll have to talk about uh, the here and now, so University of New Mexico, and where that was built. It was built on the lands of uh, the um, Pueblo of Sandia. And oftentimes, like, this kind of land acknowledgement gets shared almost as, like, here's this thing that happened in the past, and, you know, we can kind of get about it and kind of move forward. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's a very painful history, and it's often kind of ignored or denied and but I'm you know interested in how does this reality like our current reality and the fact that this is literally where we are right now and a lot of what's happening today is kind of dependent on this very violent history. Like how do we how do we make like how do we what do we make of that? So it's not like this kind of event in history like colonialism and it's gone and now we're good. It's inseparable in, in a very deep way from what's going on today and, um, and you know I, I would say that the conditions like the world views the ideas that gave birth to like this event this genocide and where we're at today are still with us in a very deep way okay and in some ways they still shape how we relate to ourselves and, and to other people okay that's how we're gonna 
And that's what we're going to get into a lot today. Is how is it that colonialism remains in the present and its traces and in very significant ways? Okay. So colonialism is um, when a nation takes over the land of another people and extracts its resources and exploits it economically. It's a very violent process. And there are many different types of colonialism. Often it involves the imposition of the colonizer's religion, culture, language, and the destruction of the culture, language, and ways of being of the colonized population. Okay. And um, this is, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history from, from Howard Sin's account. The first kind of, you can think about an inaugural event or a very important start in 1492 when Columbus um, discovered the Americas, right? And um, Spain was, was um, trying to find a new trading route to India and they stumbled upon the Bahamas. And Columbus found like a group of people who were very, had a very different lifestyle. They had um, a lot of liberty in their sexual practices. They had a, a lot of kind of equality in the way that they shared resources. And he found it remarkable. And at this time in Europe, there are two discourses on otherness. Right? Basically, from this from Celia Brickman's book, Aboriginal Populations in Mind, and she's describing two ways that Europe thought about the idea of others, like otherness. The first one was a popular medieval discourse that thought about others as like noble savages. They're like barbarians. And the other discourse is more of uh, kind of arising out of the Crusades. It's a religious legal discourse. It thinks about people outside of the e Europe as like uh, her heretics and infidels and people that needed to be brought under Christendom, their lands needed to be conquered, their lands are essentially uninhabited. Okay, so this is how Europe was thinking about the idea of an other outside of Europe at the time, right? And so Columbus finds this, you know, native population quite different and is um, astounded by like how, how hospitable they are. And then he goes back to the king and he says, kind of spins up wild tales about rivers, Flowing in like gold, like a population just ready to like accept Christendom, and you know, let's let's just go and let's like make use of this, let's make a killing. And they were looking for gold, they were looking to like kind of expand the world. So Columbus goes back to Hispaniola where he had the fort, and he finds it completely destroyed. He finds, you know, the, the guards that he left there were like gone, the fort was gone, and apparently. The guards that he had left to kind of guard the fort went off looking for gold and they enslaved like, children for labor and women for sexual exploitation. So the Taino people, the indigenous people at the time, you know, were kind of, uh, they realized how dangerous the situation is and they um, killed the Europeans and destroyed their fort. Columbus retaliated, instituted like a very virulent system of slavery and, uh, you know, that's when rapacious colonialism started. And the idea was that these people, like these savages, had to, had to be converted to Christianity. Okay? Within, uh, and the idea was that they, they would be civilized through like a very severe kind of brutal slavery. Like this would civilize them into like kind of being, being a little bit more you know, European or so to speak. And we'll get into that more. So within, within two centuries, the native population went from 100 million to, to around 5 million. Mm -hmm. So you can think about the, you know, the scope of that, like over 90% of the population. Um, and the colonization of the Americas and its immediate impact on like the global market and was like very huge. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Um, okay, so now you're, so, you know, you're thinking, how, how, would, how could this be possible? How... You know, 90% of the population gone, like how was there no like sense of morality, right? It's like it's shocking. Um, and a lot of times, like these, like their ideas, the first kind of ethical or moral debates happened in like the 16th century, and it was the first moral debate about colonialism. It was between a guy called uh, Bartolomeo de las Casas and a guy called um, Juan Ginez de Sepulveda. Okay, probably butchered their names well. They're two Catholic priests. And they were called upon by the king in the court to have a debate. And the outcome debate would decide like the, the policy of Spain towards colonialism and you know whatever's going on. 
So De Las Casas uh, was saying that we should not enslave the native population because they're human. They have a soul, right? Now, that's great. That makes sense, right? But the problem was they needed they needed to extract resources from the colonies. Like the idea that we should just give up on slavery is that's not that's not acceptable. Like they needed to keep doing this. So the Las Casas suggested that we can use Africans because their blackness um, basically means that they're not human. They can be used for slave labor. So what you're getting in this debate and, and, and kind of an outline of what it means to be human, and you're getting like this sense of a natural difference between races, and it's getting used to essentially um, justify colonial violence and, and extraction of wealth. And um, the Las Casas ideas about blackness were, were, you know, were actually present in a discourse, a religious discourse, right? You know, you know the curse of Ham from the Bible? So this is um, this is like a story from the Old Testament about Noah kind of um, being kind of being found exposed by his son Ham, and, and his son Ham didn't like cover him. And Noah woke up and was upset and cursed his uh, his Ham, like his descendants, Ham's descendants, into a lifetime of servitude. And Ham means black in Hebrew. So this is like the narrative, the biblical narrative that gets often used to justify slavery. Now, the very interesting thing, the very important thing to realize is that... So, I'm sorry, um, kind of bringing curse of ham. So, or, or, and are you saying to, or are you about to say this? I just got really involved into it. The curse of, like, they use that as evidence that black is less. And, and that they're, they should be enslaved. They're, they have been condemned to lifetime service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. This was like a big religious justification. Well, yeah. And it was actually used against uh, the peasantry in Europe. So before it was associated with race, it was associated with class. So the peasantry in Europe were often associated with blackness because of their exposure to the sun and their nearness to the soil. So the same, the same biblical narrative about Ham that justified slavery justified the servitude of uh, the peasantry. Okay, so this is something to kind of bear in mind in this historical narrative, the way that race class can get tangled up in a, in a very important way. Um, so, this extraction of wealth from the colonies that was very important needed uh, philosophical grounding, needed ideas, ideologies that support it, support this domination. And so you've got um, European um, clerics who are arguing that um, non-whites were born to be slaves because they are ruled by passion and not by reason and they're closer to nature. So you, around this time, you're getting these binaries, like these opposites getting constructed of like kind of uh, non-white as be, well, the white is kind of the South, it's pure, it's civilized, it's, it's rational, it's controlling. The non-white is the opposite of that. It's irrational, it's wild, it's dangerous, it's primitive. And these are all very important binaries that were getting constructed and kind of peddled and internalized, and they were, they were determining the way that people related to each other and the way that Europe's related to other cultures and even the way that people within Europe and outside of Europe related intersubjectively. So we're going to keep an eye on that. We're going to track the way that these binaries operate. Yeah? And um, just to give you a sense of the breadth of colonialism, because um, I'm, you know, making some big statements, right? But um, colonialism was a truly global, global force. If you look at this map here, um, this is the map of the world, right? And really when we talk, we're not talking about colonialism, I'm talking about Western Europe. So forget about all of this part, okay? We're talking about this small peninsula here. Yeah. This small peninsula, in 1914, controlled 84% of the world, okay? This is the map of the world, and these are all the countries that were colonized by Europe. This is the green stuff. Countries that were never colonized by Europe in the 500 years of colonialism are literally five. Yeah, but that one in Africa, you know? That, one, that one's false, that one's a mistake. Oh no, Africa, that little... So it's like, there's Liberia, and there's Ethiopia. Okay. There's Thailand, there's Korea, there's Japan and okay. Korea. Is, if you split Korea into two, then it's like six countries, right? But like, imagine the scope. Like, literally, the whole world for 500 years 
right? Imagine the, the destruction of cultures, destruction of languages, the destruction of different ways of being, the imposition of the European model of the world. This happened for 500 years across the entire globe, okay? I mean, so, so Eurocentrism, right? Like, literally, look at this map, like, look at this map, right? Where is Europe? <laughs> Europe is at the center of the map. Yeah. Where is the Middle East? The Middle East is named in relation to Europe. And what is yellow? I can't see the rest of it. It's like things. European sphere of influence. That's um, Saudi. So, so if you even just look at this, like even like you can see how Eurocentrism is embedded in the map itself. Like the Middle East is named in relation to Europe. Europe is at the center of it. And so, with the different colors, so like green to the middle green to the yellow is like amount of control. Partially. Partially. Yeah, yeah, partially European control of influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so truly a global, global um, phenomenon. And what happened with Europe is um, when they found themselves that they they've kind of succeeded at putting themselves at the center of modernity. Um, they developed something that every other every other dominant kind of colonizer develops. It's like a sense of ethnocentrism, okay? But with Europe, this is what's unique, is that um, they developed a racial classification system that justified their ethnocentrism. So not only were they kind of uh, superior, they were naturally superior. There's something about inherent to their like race that makes them superior. And this is a racial classification system that covered the globe. And it mapped out kind of others and, and non-whites along these kind of binaries that we were just talking about. And um, and this is Cecil Rhodes here, who, um, you know, from Africa's Road Asia and apartheid, being quite flamboyant and very, very superior, very um, supremacist. Um, now, this other thing that's very interesting about Eurocentrism and, and what it came up with is a different um, model of history. Came up a new tem new temporality, where Europeans started to see themselves as the moderns of Europe. They're the they're like the like they're the moderns of the species of, of humanity. Basically, they're the most advanced mm. in the world. And the way that humanity progresses is it goes from a state of nature and then inevitably and naturally towards an advanced kind of civilized Europeanness. This is how they saw history. They saw history as naturally progressing from primitive to like civilized, from basically from non-white to white. So they had they reorganized kind of their, their history as a kind of temporal perspective that aligns with that kind of developmentalist view. Okay. And this is like, uh, now, now when we kind of put it to words, it's like interesting. It's like something, okay. So, but this was a very unconsciously accepted model of how we see time and how we see the world and how we see history. And it was kind of getting internalized even by people who were ostensibly trying to combat Eurocentrism. Okay? And we actually, we see this in Freud. So like this kind of, um, this kind of idea where um, for Freud, the development of the psyche goes from, you know, in the same way that it goes from an immature, infantile mental state into a mature, healthy, adult kind of state is analogous in parallel to the way that societies progress from primitive to like a civilized society, right? And this is where the idea of a primitive defense mechanism comes from. So colonial thinking and this kind of developmentist view of history is embedded in a deep way in Freud's thinking and psychoanalysis and in, and in European thought in general. Right? Um, so when we when we kind of when we kind of point it out, it's like okay, weird. Maybe that's not how things necessarily develop. Um, but there was something very uh, hegemonic in this kind of idea, like the way that this was the dominant commonsensical approach to history. And Europeans were able to um, spread and establish this view of history as kind of the natural thing. So that even, even people who are combating Eurocentrism um, would internalize it. So I'll give you an example from, from this book called Design Guys by Joseph Massad. Uh, you had this famous French Orientalist, Renan, was giving a lecture 
fancy pants French lecture in 1880s in the Sorbonne, and he was talking about how Islam is um, inherently hostile to science and philosophy. Okay, typical, typical Orientalist racist colonial view. Um, now, a Muslim intellectual called Al-Afghani heard about this and he was like, this is not acceptable, I have to combat this. And, um, and what he did is he, um, this, this is the argument that he lays out. So to give, give you a sense of how things were looking like at the time. He said basically that religion is uh, kind of something that gets adopted in a transitional phase from the move from barbarism to like civilization. And this happened for Europe with the Protestant Reformation. So what he was telling Renan, the Orientalist, is like, be patient, right? <laughs> so he's not here. You know, he's saying that eventually, at some point, we will also be, you know, civilized and like, you know, you white and European. So like this is, so there's like kind of an, an acceptance of the terms and the frameworks, yeah. even by people who, who like didn't necessarily think of themselves as doing that. You know, so like the very view of history, the very view of reality and the models and the paradigms are kind of absorbed in this way, you know, 500 years. That's what happens. Um, and you're getting these binaries again of um, East, West, primitive, civilized, magic, scientific, irrational, rational, traditional, modern, not Europe and Europe. And these were disseminated across the globe and they shaped and structured cultural and intersubjective, um, you know, relations. So, got a little statue of David here. Um, so if you notice, it's only upon the discovery of the Americas and colonialism that Europe starts to talk about itself as like a universal human. So Europe is not only kind of classifying the world and kind of projecting certain images of others, it's also constructing an image of itself, right? So it's, so it's you know, this, this is where Europe is starting to understand itself as like the universal subject of history. And so in some ways it needed, it's like non-European, this other, in order to, kind of, to come to an understanding of itself. Um, and the idea of race does not have a history before the colonization of the Americas. Okay, so this, this idea, this construction was created in order to give legitimacy to the relations of domination that were ongoing um, under colonialism. They needed to have an ideology, they needed to have ideas that justified the brutality and the violence that was ongoing. And um, it was initially referring to phenotypic differences between the conqueror and the conquered, and then it started to refer to like biological differences. And it organized the world into ranks, into what places and positions people could take. Okay. And that was that was by the, the colonizers, like they came up with like the colonizers came up with that. Yes, remember that debate with the Las Casas? That was like that was the initial kind of idea that there's natural difference. That was kind of the beginning of uh, the idea of race, yeah. And we know as physicians that race is a construction. It's, um, you know, the AMA came out and they have this very clear statement that race is a social, not biological construct. So now we're sitting here and we're understanding what is this construct? Where did it appear and why does it exist, right? And it's very, very kind of deeply kind of ingrained in people's psyches and in some important ways structures societies, shapes people's roles in them, shapes institutions, okay? So despite being a construction, it's very real or actualized, okay? Okay, so, um, this was also around the time that Europe is coming to the enlightenment, right? Europe is doing great. Europe is, you know, thinking about itself as the universal human. They are the reasonable, they are the rational. And they're thinking about subjectivity, what it means to be a person, what it means to have a mind, what it means to be an agent. And as we were kind of laying out ideas, the reason why certain ideas flourish, certain ideas develop, is because of their context. There are material practices that shape ideas, okay? And there's kind of a, 
interchange and that ideas also affect material practice. So one idea that was emerging at this time of colonial domination is a very influential idea that is still with us today, obviously. It's Rene Descartes' cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. So think think about that for a second. Like, what is that? What does that mean? Like, I think, therefore I am. Well, well I'm, I'm curious on what you, where your interpretation is going and how society kind of takes that phrase. But that initially came from from Descartes' argument, like questioning of is this reality um, or is this just a dream? And the fact um, that he is a thinking thing that he can recognize that he is thinking means he actually is a thing as opposed to not just a, a part of something else. So right. That he can like. Yeah, the reality around us could be something else, but the fact that he knows that he is thinking means that he is something. Right, right. The the basis of existence, the basis of reality is rooted in this metacognitive mm. kind of understanding that there is thought, there is thinking. And you're um, but but you know, if we kind of strip it down a little bit, so I think, therefore I am. What does it mean to to be? What does it mean to be a self, to be a person, to be a subject? Thinking. It is thinking that. You know, establishes you as a person, right? And if you think about Descartes' model of subjectivity, model of like a person, you kind of get this sense of like a of like a, a human being with like a little kind of another human being who's like a thinking subject in their mind, kind of like this little creature here. Okay. And so you're getting this sense that thinking and reason in some ways is essential to, to what it means to be a human, to be a person, right? So you're getting almost like a secularization of the idea of the soul. So instead of soul, we have reasons. What is it that makes a human being a human being, a subject, an agent? It's reason. Who did not have reason? Who in their imagination was irrational? Right, the col like the colonized people who were colonized were thought as being irrational, as, as lacking reason. So, so then naturally, they're not human. They're not subjects. They're not agents, right? So the the I think therefore I am is inseparable from the I think therefore I conquer, like the subject has conquered, right? Because you're getting this kind of you know reason as being kind of almost like the foundational essence of subjectivity, right? And a lot of people obviously don't have that subjectivity. Other idea from Descartes, mind-body dualism, right? For Descartes, you have a body, and that's physical, and that's totally separate from the mind, which is non-physical, right? Now, we know as psychiatrists that this is not true, but we have a very kind of way more intimate connection between the mind and the body. You have psychosomatic symptoms. You have the gut flora, which influences mood and mental health symptoms. You have. So, you know, it's, a, it's, not, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not accurate, mind-body dualism. But there was, a, there was a logic to it and there was a function to it, okay? Now, the mind gets associated with reason, with whiteness, um, the body, more with nature. The idea is that non-whites are closer to nature, and so we start to get this kind of um, idea that bodies can just be put to work. They're like machines, right? Especially if they don't have reason. And this is gaining important currency now with the emergence of capitalism, where there is a you know a demand for labor, a demand for bodies to be put to work. Okay, and there's also it, it has an interesting connection too with what I'm going to talk about next, which is the sexual division of labor and the way that women started to kind of take on a different role in this emerging society. So in Europe, you're having feudalism. Okay? This is the socio-political cultural arrangement of society. And the way that things were running at the time is you had, you had the peasantry, peasants who were working the land of the aristocrats most of the time, and then for 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 another amount of time, you know, maybe half a days of the week or something, they have their own land to work on, and this is just for something that you know, so they can kind of uh, sustain themselves or eat, you know, whatever, like cook, sleep, basic stuff. 
That's what feudalism means. Yeah, most, yeah, exactly. Like, mostly working the lands of the aristocrats, a little bit of kind of their own land. Like, they'd have, um, they would have like access to, to ponds to like kind of fish, they'd have um, fields for the animals to graze and like woods that they could take. Um, like, yeah, they had, they had some kind of means. And these, these lands, these things that they owned, they were owned collectively. So the peasants collectively owned these kind of, um, their land that they could work and reproduce themselves. Um, they were called the commons. Okay? Now, throughout the 15th century, there were like huge revolts and rebellions of the peasantry against the, the you know, the aristocrats and against the, the church and against the merchants. And um, importantly, women were actually a huge kind of force in leading all of these rebellions and these revolts. Okay. Around this time, you started to get the witch hunt. This is, um, it, was, it was a very kind of brutal, kind of very public torture and kind of burning of, of women at the stake. And this was happening at the same time as, you know, genocides in the in, in Americas, also of the slave trade, and now kind of women being kind of persecuted in Europe. And as a result of the revolts, these lands of the peasants were being expropriated. They were taking away. So now these peasants that used to have a little bit of land that they could kind of use are now kind of, are losing that land. That land is being taken from them, and they're being left to rely on a wage. Okay, so now they have nothing, so they have to rely on a wage. And this is the emergence of capitalism. These are the forces that um, basically bring um, capitalism out of feudal society. So capitalism emerges out of the heart of feudal society. The same landlords, the same feudal landlords, transform themselves into like the capitalist landowners. They're the ones who commercialized agriculture. They're the ones who set off a land market. Okay. So a lot of people say like capitalism was actually a progressive force from feudalism. It got better. This argument is that it actually emerges from the heart and the kind of the worst parts of, of feudalism. Okay. And there's this really good book by Silvia Federici called. With, um, Caliban and the Witch, and um, we'll, you know, it goes more into these witch hunts, like what was going on there, why, why, why was that happening? So there was an obsession in Europe at the time with population growth. There was um, a very popular ideology called mercantilism, which posited that a strong nation has a big poor population that can be basically exploited for their labor. Okay? And now with the emergence of capitalism, it wasn't about how much land you own that would make you wealthy, it's about how much laborers you have and how much you could make them work. So labor became very important. Okay? Um, so around the time of the witch hunts, also there was this kind of drive to really um, Get women to procreate. They wanted they wanted to kind of control the reproductive capacity of women, and they wanted to make sure that we get as much labor as we can. And there was all kinds of legislation getting getting passed around about um, kind of um, um, basically you know um, illegalizing abortion and also um, criminalizing like all forms of contraception. Really, this was happening. And if you look at what these witches were being accused of, oftentimes they were accused of being baby killers. Okay. So um, what these witch hunts did, according to Sylvia Federici, is they really enforced this new role of um, basically um, what, what, what she calls the housewifeization. So now there's an important role that women have to play that it's, it's about unpaid reproductive labor. Okay. So in the capitalist society, uteruses started to be linked to like labor and laborers, and um, this was something important that was going on at the time. So now the state has hold over procreation, okay. and this was a very important period. The witch hunts and they established new norms for what it means to be a woman in the society. Um, and if you think about, um, you think about. Um, the women who were really playing a strong role in the rebellions and the revolutions at the time. This was an attempt to break the power of women and to enforce 
this housewifeization through like very violent means. And uh, which has represented everything that the capitalist society did not want, right? These were heretics, these were healers, you know, the um, you know, um, the, the, you know, the women who, who uh, lived alone, um, all of these things. And um, Federici traces like the change in the social status of women, you know, after these witch hunts where now you start to get this uh, idea that, you know, women are being encouraged to not go out by themselves, to like not sit outside, to then like ale brewing changed from like a women kind of profession to like a associated with men. And then interestingly, the the word gossip changed from meaning friend to like acquire like a negative connotation. So there was a like a change in, in the in the norms and in the kind of the positioning of women in the society. And this was happening contemporary with the slave trade, with the genocide in the new world, and with the expropriation of the peasant class. So you're getting like a complete reorganization about how society should function, what roles people should take, how they should relate to each other. Okay. And this it's been like very widely documented the way that um, colonialism and slavery were huge factors in the emergence of capitalism. So, so who's yeah. who's running this? Like who's who's like the person making like or, or like a group of like these rich white dudes or others, like saying like oh okay like if you're not white you're not human but also if you're poor you're also less human if you're a woman you're also less human like who who's like driving well, this? It's these ideas converge with material practices, right? So it's the way that colonialism took off, the way that these binaries kind of came out almost naturally from these dominations, from these relations of domination, um, also went back to kind of influence Europe and became like the ruling class ideology to maintain the status quo, which was deeply oppressive to a lot of different people. So it's not like there was a group of rich aristocrats that did this. This was the way that uh, society functioned. And this was the way that very violent practices shaped ideologies and then ideologies shaped the practices and um, yeah okay yeah. <laughs> how, how, how do you feel about this time? yeah it's like all fucked up I mean, it, like... it is it's, it's, a that, it's a lot yeah, yeah it's a history that doesn't often get talked about it's a marginal history right but i think it's it's important to kind of get into that because um, it'll help you be a better psychiatrist and understand a lot of the things that people come with, like transgenerational stuff, and the way that the social world that we live in is constructed in a particularly violent way, right? We don't get that. We don't understand how could that be. But if you look at these marginal histories, you can start to get a sense of, yeah, it makes sense. Because they inherit, like, you know, colonialism, they inherit, like, we inherit white supremacy from that, right? We inherit our society from that. So, like, these historical questions are important and help us understand the way that people suffer today yeah you know yeah and it's yeah it's it's ugly it's painful and it's ugly and um yeah and um yeah so we were and just to give you a sense of the amount of wealth that got extracted under colonialism there was a recent study uh, about india in the two centuries of colonialism in india uh, Britain drained $45 trillion, okay? So when you look at poor nations and, and rich nations now, you know, this is this is why. It's because of slavery and colonialism, you know? And um, the amount of wealth that was extracted during this time into Europe um, is what fuels industrial revolution and is what gives birth to capitalism and um and you start to have like this racist division of labor, right? You know, we were talking about, you know, you have white, you have the non-white, you have the primitive, you have the civilized, you have the rational, the irrational. And now you start to get the labor being divided along these binaries. So um, if you're racially inferior and non-white, naturally, you're not worth being paid, right? Um, if you're, and even among the mestizos, like the, the more white you are, the better job that you get. And this like associate, associate between race and labor and the kind of job you do, is with us to this day. Okay? It's a very powerful link. Like uh, Frances Verges in her book, Decolonial Feminism, asks the question, who cleans the world? Right? Who cleans the world? You know, it's black and brown women. Right? So this is something that's with us today in, in a very um, important way. Um, okay, so 
Europe didn't just control the global markets. Um, they controlled the culture and they controlled knowledge production and they controlled ideas about subjectivity and gender. Okay. Again, 500 years, center of the world, molded the world into its image. And this is a quote from um, Kihano, and he's kind of outlining this new global model of power. He says, in the control of labor and its resources and products, there is a capitalist enterprise. In the control of sex and its resources and products, the bourgeois family. In the control of authority and its resources and products, the nation state. In the control of intersubjectivity, Eurocentrism. Okay? So Eurocentrism, white supremacy, you know, these things are very similar. Um, so what I'm saying to you is that this society that we've inherited, there is something in this social fabric like of our world in the way that intersubjectively and culturally things are kind of constructed in a violent way. It's not made to be home for everyone. This is made to be home for, for a specific person, okay? colonizer. Okay? So there's something traumatizing about the social fabric, the very world that we live in. Okay? Um, and here's, here's a quote from, from a psychiatrist. Her name is Beverly Stout. This is what she says. She says, the white supremacist society, racist projections invade the intersubjective space. Right? So these binaries, primitive, irrational, these are projections. So racist projections invade the intersubjective space and the black racial other is forced into a position of deflecting, defending against, metabolizing, or internalizing the toxic projections of the white dominant society, right? So we can understand the quote from James Baldwin, to be black in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all of the time, okay? This is not just poetic, like, this is real, like, you know, and, and it helps you kind of maybe rethink about certain reactions, certain symptoms, certain ideas that some of the patients might have, you know. We talked about some hugely, hugely disturbing things that happen in history. These things get transmitted. These things don't just go away. Um, representations of self and object, experiences, affects, they get carried over to the descendants whose task it becomes to deal with the shame, rage, helplessness, entitlement, and guilt that the previous generations have been unable to work through for themselves. Um, okay, and I'm gonna fast forward closer to this time. You're thinking maybe, all right, like, I guess they used to be racist back then, like we don't have that problem so much in terms of the knowledge. Um, and just to give you a sense of the way that Eurocentrism and like this paradigm and like the way that it seeps into the most kind of basic assumptions and, and the way that we do knowledge. Um, we can think about some ways that our profession has been complicit. So have you heard of uh, dreptomania? Mm -hmm. Molly's nodding her head. Dreptomania is um, a disease in the brain of a slave who wants to, you know, um, escape captivity. It's like, how could they possibly want freedom, right? This other one, I don't even, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I'm not going to try it. Yeah. And what it's referring, what it refers to is a pathological, like the disrespect for the master's property. And the cure for it is like extensive whipping. This is, this is all mainstream psychiatry. This is like accepted mainstream, well-respected positions. Um, and at the turn of the 20th century, the well-respected academic psychiatrists and psychologists argued that um, the brain for um, blacks who were enslaved is unfit for freedom, right? And they were actually using um, some statistics and data of an increase in mental illness following emancipation. These were respected journals, respected doctors. These were mainstream opinions, okay? And what, what this was reflecting is it was reflecting something deeply colonial. 
right? The belief that European colonizers civilized non-whites. And here is this binary, here is this deeply racist kind of colonial worldview shaping the very diagnostic criteria and studies in psychiatry, okay, at the turn of the century. Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, like, it, for, for me, this kind of brings up a, a theme that, quick little tangent, but like, what, like, people 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, genetically are the exact same as us. Like, we could have lived back then and been a part of this and been slave owners or slaves in a part of this dynamic and been the person present like it, the fact that the intellectual community like buys into these ideas is insane to us now but if we were living then we'd be like oh yeah that makes sense that checks out and it makes me think of like what kind of things i hope are not as extreme as this but that we so like that we don't recognize in our society that science or literature supports Absolutely, yeah. but we're just not able to have that like recognition of how fucked up it is yeah 100 i think that, i think that is the crucial question <laughs> yeah 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 because and what it shows you is that these things don't get discovered invented in an objective lab somewhere the way that we practice psychiatry our knowledges our sciences are not immune from social, socioeconomic, political influences and historical kind of context, right? So, so yeah, that's that's a very important point. And, um, and we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into some more recent stuff that was going on uh, around the civil rights era. And we're going to get into this book uh, by Jonathan Manzo, who's a psychiatrist at Vanderbilt. It's called The Protest Psychosis. And um, we're going to basically get more into the very diagnosis of schizophrenia and how certain racial biases went into its construction. Okay. Well, that'll be, that'll be for next time. But yeah, Jay, Jay's point is, is, um, you know, I think one of the main things that we want to um, take away from this is that how is it that we're practicing right now in a way that maybe, um, has like some blind spots, you know, and who is it? Who is it damaging? Um, and speaking of blind spots, so this is a really good quote from, from Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And it says, I am invisible simply because people refuse to see me. It is as though I've been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. Invisibility is a matter of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. Okay. So this is this is the this is like the colonial worldview. This is like, this is like a perspective that makes you not see certain things, right? So these binaries that we're talking about, the way that they structured the world is they, they structured the perception, it rendered certain people invisible. Okay. So us being able to go into that history, going into how huge that was and how influential that was, and the way that maintains a stronghold on our current reality, right? Might be, um, hopefully, um, might help us maybe not render certain things invisible, you know? So that's one of the good things about having these conversations. Um, and I think if I, if I want to give you one pragmatic, like one practical kind of advice or thing in this whole lecture is um, you get a patient, before you get into their psychological reality, you want to agree on reality. You want to agree on what the reality is. Because people live in vastly different realities, and oftentimes things get pathologized, things get kind of um, not understood because you're not agreeing on reality first. So that needs to happen right? with, with patients before you get into it. Psychological stuff, especially this is especially for therapy. Okay, um, and I think I think I'm done. We're gonna get more into psychoanalysis, psychodynamics, and like clinical stuff over the, over the next two lectures. So this was like important in terms of foundation, yeah, for like what what we're gonna get into next. Because if you're not getting into like this history and the way that's with us, the way it shapes things, it's not gonna make sense. You know how. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Any, any questions? Anything you want to talk about? It's, it's good to hear. It's, I guess I'm naive to a lot of this shit. <laughs> like shocking too. It is. It is, yeah. yeah. Aziz, how do you feel? Like, how do you, um, how do you keep from feeling rage all oh, the time? Yeah, I, have, I have trouble hearing you. Um, oh, sorry. Can you hear me okay? Uh, okay, I think we're good. Yeah. I guess how do you um how do you keep from feeling rage all the time, and then how do you direct that? Yeah, great, great question. Okay, so uh, what what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two two papers. Okay, the first one is called Confusion of Tongues by Frenzy, and in that paper, um, he's describing something very important called an identification with the aggressor, identification with the oppressor. A lot of people's reaction to these conditions is they're like, like, all right, fuck it. Like, I'll just try to be white, right? Like, that's that's one reaction. You identify with the oppressor, and that's a huge, huge problem. That's an alienation. And a lot of you see it very often. And we're going to talk about that. The other reaction is um, is more complicated. It involves using rage, as a healthy adaptive defense to prevent those toxic internalizations. And I'm going to uh, suggest a paper by Beverly Stout called, called Black Rage. So I'll give you these two papers. I'll send them to you as PDFs. So the first one is Confusion of Tongues. The second one is um, Beverly Stout. You, you're busy. You know, you can read it whenever. Like you don't have to read it during these um, you know, next two weeks. But um, I'll make sure that you have them. Yeah. So, so what this does is like, you know, the idea that if a person is angry, if they're mistrustful of medical authority, that's a problem, that's a pathology. It's not. There's healthy, adaptive ways to, you, in some ways, you need rage. You need, in some ways, you need this rage. Yeah. It will be, that's like healthy. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Dr. Abdel Aziz Abawab. For more, please visit his YouTube page, which is linked to at renderingunconscious.org, where you can view this lecture as well as other lectures that he's done. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson, for contributing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com and follow him at social media, carl.abrahamson at Instagram and carlabrahamson at TikTok. And now the song, Searching for Substance off the recently re-released collaboration between The Majesty, aka Genesis Peoridge, and Cotton Ferox, which is my husband Carl Abrahamson and his musical partner Thomas Tibert. The album is Wordship and you can find it streaming at Spotify as well as at Bandcamp. Visit Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com On Friday, September 22nd at 10 p.m. Central European time, we're going to have a listening party live for Wordship. Link to register for the listening party is included in the text accompanying this episode. So join us there and enjoy.